Hello and welcome. It's Jordan Rich here with another edition of On Mike and today another fascinating guest. We'll get to him in just a moment. First, a reminder on how you can contact us. My email address is jordan at chartproductions.com and it's Chart Productions where we produce this podcast with the help of Ken Carberry and Dan Tebow. On Twitter, it's at JordanWBZ and the Facebook page is Jordan Rich Show. Today's guest is James Redfern. Jim is the author of the Irish-American saga, The Rising at Roxbury Crossing, and another true crime book called An Appointed Time, which is a fictional account of the largest manhunt in Massachusetts history. In 1971, Jim began a 21-year career with the Massachusetts State Police. He was a patrol officer, a criminal investigator, and an instructor at the academy. He's been a frequent lecturer on investigative research methods at national law enforcement conferences, and along with his work as a police officer, he's been an industrial commercial photographer and a private investigator for a Boston law firm. He also has a great story to tell in The Rising at Roxbury Crossing about the Boston police strike. So without any further ado, it's time to go on mic. Well, here it is 100 years since the famous Boston police strike, and none better than my guest and good friend, James Redfern. Jim is here to talk about that, about the books that he's written that we talked about in the introduction, and uh, much more. Jim, welcome. Nice to see you again, my friend. Thank you very much, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. I remember the first book, Rising at Roxbury Crossing. I remember reading it and knowing a little bit about the police strike, knowing that Calvin Coolidge was involved and so forth, Mm -hmm. but not knowing nearly as much as you did in the research. Why is this such an intriguing story for you? Well, it it is uh, because of a personal uh, attachment to it, and that is uh, my father-in-law's father was one of the strikers. And what's interesting is how I found that out was just a a passing conversation with him. Um, Mm -hmm. It was actually over a cup of coffee, and um, he was just talking generally about things in the past, and, and he mentioned almost uh, haphazardly that, uh, oh, yeah, my father was a Boston police officer. And why that was all important to him, because it, uh, his father died when he was only three years of age. So um, I asked if he wanted, like, if I would do some, you know, some background, see if I could find out something more, you know, something he could pass on to his grandchildren. So I did, and uh, I met with the archivists from the, the Boston police, and, and what I learned from going over there was that, in fact, he was a Boston police officer, but he was also one of the 1,100 patrolmen uh, on September 9th, 1919, who walked off the job over uh, working conditions and pay mm. and, and so forth. And that's what got me really interested. And was he one of those who was not brought back, gone after that? Yes. Okay. Yes. But let's explore the event itself. The Boston police, like a lot of police forces, I assume, underpaid and overworked in that era, correct? That's correct. All right. That's so correct. they got the idea that it was time to organize, and it didn't go over well with the commissioner and others. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, on initial um, – uh, a look at, at that event, I think a lot of people would think of it, it was really part of the, the labor movement at the time. Um, during 1919, there were 3,600 labor strikes, and every, every imaginable uh, kind of worker went out uh, at that period. Um, this is actually a little different, and, and it's my humble opinion that uh, after you know reading uh, some of the background, some of the other things that went on at the time, that this was more than uh, this, uh, you know, labor issue, that it really was a struggle for political c- control and power 
uh, in the city of Boston between the older established uh, English families, the Brahmins, if you will, and the newer uh, Irish community. Mm. And uh, and that had a lot to do with it when, when you look at some of the uh, things that the, the the players in in that particular event uh, did. There was a an attack on the police who organized that they were quote Bolshevik inspired, mm-hmm. which is really weird to think about yeah. Irish cops having anything to do with the Russians in that period. But that was the kind of tenor that was going on, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, it it actually was uh, you know uh, kind of uh, the flames were kind of beaten a little bit by the the media at the time. Um, and I think historians uh, now looking back feel that it wasn't as big an issue as, as was led to believe at the, at the time. And then, of course, you know, uh, politicians, uh, you know, taking particular views. And, and it was also, um, you know, you're also talking about a period right after World War I. So there was a lot of a feeling of nationalism at the time, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, loyalty to the country and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it sounds somewhat, uh, you know, in, t- in tune with what's going on today. You know, a lot of the, that, that movement came in with the immigrants and, and, the, and things that occurred in mm. Europe. Mm. And, um, and there was, uh, you know, a little bit of, of uh, some communities, uh, some ethnic groups, really not wanting to t- participate in the American experience and wanted to keep their their identity mm-hmm. as uh, as socialists and whatnot. Right. So. There was a period, I think a week, that became very violent and it resulted in several, what, nine or so deaths, maybe more, a lot of injuries, right? Yes. And, and tell us what happened. They, the governor called out other troops to keep order or... Or what? Well, I, I think you're, you're referring to the May Day riots. Yeah. Um, and that was, again, celebration of, of, of May Day. Um, and the, the riot that occurred locally uh, took place down in the Dudley Street area. And uh, it was an issue, you know, on the surface, it was just an issue about a, a parade permit that uh, got out of hand. And uh, there was, um, you know, a, a lot of assaults. There were people... Um, uh, that were injured, and a captain of the Boston police uh, died in the in the in the uh, uh, mm-hmm. disturbance. So, um, so th- that again, and that um, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, flamed, you know the um, uh, you know the opinions of people as far as this whole movement was concerned, the socialist movement and, and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. and, uh, and resulted in assaults in the neighborhoods uh, of, of people known to be socialists. You know, I mentioned Calvin Coolidge, who ultimately became Silent Cal, the president. But mm-hmm. did this indeed elevate him to national status? What happened? How he handled the strike, and how did he handle it? In your opinion? Well, the police strike, yes, uh, it did. As a matter of fact, that that was his. Uh, his ticket, so to speak, to the White House. Um, you know, Silent Cal has this uh, reputation of, of kind of being a hands-off guy and letting things kind of mm. uh, settle out themselves. Um, but I wonder, you know, from again, from my research, how much of that was intentional and as far as, you know, letting things play out. Because uh, he had a, a ready uh, group of people to step in and, and take the, the, the positions of the police, and that is the World War I veterans. Because there, there wasn't 
Um, the, the economy was bad, you know, post-war economy, um, a lot of unemployment. And, and if you remember uh, historically that uh, some of these um, wives and mothers of the veterans actually marched on Washington, mm. uh, you know, petitioning the government for jobs and whatnot for, for their, their, yeah. their sons and husbands, you know. Yeah, it was a difficult time for veterans, no question. Yeah. It was also uh, post the influenza epidemic that yeah. uh, ravaged the world. There were a lot of issues right then that were boiling over. Yeah, there were, and and you know, um, it really was a, a, a time of uh, a, a kind of I, I I think of it as like a bubbling vat of oil or something or other. Um, you have the you know you've got the molasses flood that took place uh, in uh, earlier in 1919, and um, you've got. Um, uh, you've got the the socialist movement. You've got the the woman suffrage uh, movement. Mm. You got prohibition that that actually uh, became law as each state ratified the the new amendment. And um, so Massachusetts actually had a prohibition law um, July first, nineteen nineteen. The difference was that it wasn't enforced uh, as strongly as after the Volstead Act. What a time, though, to. To not have police available, to have police <laughs> deciding that they needed better wages. What a time for that. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it, they lived uh, actually uh, difficult lives. They lived in, in, in a barrack system at the time um, and, uh, uh, you know, spent 15 days in the stations before they were allowed to go home. If they even wanted to take their family uh, out of the, the city for, you know, say, to the beach on a hot day, they had to get permission from the captain. They earned only uh, like twelve hundred dollars a year. Mm. It was, and the stations were in deplorable condition. Uh, I think since the Civil War, I think they had only built one new station, so they were run down. They were vermin infested. Uh, just, just difficult. Indeed. One, one of the things, and we'll talk about your other book and how this connects that you do so brilliantly is you really give us a sense of what it's like, the life of the everyday cop in various eras. And you just started to tell us a little bit. And in the rising at Roxbury Crossing, you know, we learn about these people and what they what they were going through and how they raised kids and how they dealt with crime and how they dealt with the conditions. And it really reminds us what kind of a sacrifice these people made. Yeah, they did. Um, and and they had a lot of um, responsibilities that you wouldn't ordinarily uh, associate with police. Like, for example, they were the ones who took the poll. Uh, they were the ones that uh, did the census. Uh, so that, that they, you know, they, they had a lot of other uh, 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 assignments, um, strikes, all the strikes. They, they were usually assigned to the, to, to the strikes. After World War One, uh, just like many major cities, they, they put on a lot of parades for the veterans and whatnot. So they were assigned to the to that, and that could be that could be their uh, their off duty time. So they never even got a chance to go home in the first place. A lot of know? pressure. So let's let's move on to an appointed time. It's a different era. It's also a novel. It's about the state police in the late fifties and an actual case. I ended up reading the book to myself, and I read it to the world when I was honored to do. <laughs> the audiobook, but what a story that is. One of those untold stories. Where did you get the idea to do this? Well, you know, lately I've been, when I've been addressing people, I've been talking about this three-step uh, or three phases to that I use um, to, to produce, create a novel and, and, and start from the beginning and, and, and finish it. And um, 
in 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 both books cases it, it starts out with the idea and the idea can obviously come from uh, many many different uh, places um, in in the in a point of time um, that that came from my my experience in in the state police academy um, they used to the the instructors used to move us down the main corridor um, uh, to the mess hall uh, several times a day and on the way to the mess hall we would pass a large display case with a glass uh, uh, front on it and one of the things that caught my eye almost immediately was this photograph it was an 8 by 10 black and white photograph and in the photograph there are four troopers and they've got a hold of a man and they're coming out of uh, a thickly um, a wooded area a lot of underbrush wet Look like a kind of an unpleasant place. What was interesting about the photograph was, first of all, the way the police officers were dressed. Usually when the state police moves as a group, they're all dressed the same. But two of these guys had their boots and breeches and long sleeve shirts on, but they had no ties on, no, no, um, uh, no collar ornaments or, or metal of any kind. And one of them had his sleeves rolled up uh, to his elbow. That's unusual for the state police, especially back then, because... Uh, they only had one uniform. There was no campaign hat back then. There was no short sleeve shirts. They, they wore these long, mm-hmm. heavy uniforms mm-hmm. all year round. And so, um, and then the one officer was dressed in a raincoat, and the fourth officer was dressed in the full full uniform. So that told me, well, there's something going on here. There's a division of labor here, and there seemed to be an urgency to the whole thing. And the other thing I noticed was the expressions on, especially the officers that were in shirt sleeves. They had this expression. Uh, they were like, looked like they were exhausted, and yet there was kind of a firm resolve to their mm. expressions. The next thing I noticed, was, uh, more importantly, was the man that they had a hold of. This is all the same photograph now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And they've got a hold of this three, four rather burly police officers, and they got this guy by um, by the arms. And the first thing you notice is that he's, he's a smaller man than them. And, and, and the next thing I notice is that he's, he's actually dressed in a state police raincoat. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at it closer, I could see that he didn't have anything on under the raincoat. He was naked. So I'm saying, all right, this guy, they grabbed him in the woods. Um, they, they stripped him down. They threw a raincoat around. He's got to be a pretty bad hombre, you know? Mm-hmm. So... But the most important thing of the whole photograph and what really caught my attention was the expression on the man's face. Because you would think looking at, uh, you know, at this photograph and him being held by these four big guys, that he'd have a little bit of a wide-eyed feel in his <laughs> eye, you know, maybe a little come-to-Jesus moment. But he didn't. He had a very smug kind of blasé, like, okay, is this it? Is, is this all we're doing here? Mm. And I said, that's got to be really interesting to find out who this guy is. Well, you know? the villains of the piece are brothers, and it's based on an actual case, and they did chase them through the swamp. And the detail in the book is quite vivid. And uh, But really what's what it's about is, is about the good guys working under very difficult conditions. One of the most touching scenes involves uh, an actual uh, old veteran of World War II who commits suicide stands to reason that people were under intense pressure, post-traumatic stress and all that. Right. And you paint that picture uh, that you would know so well being on the force and knowing some of these guys. Well, the, the thing that I think that once I decided I was going to look into this and, 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 and start to, you know, at least do the, the initial steps to, to writing a novel was the, 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 that I was impressed with was the the, uh, 
the time in history. This is 1959. This is the 1950s. And it's a time before, um, just before great social change of the 60s and 70s. Hard time. Uh, Spartan time. I mean, these police officers, number one, uh, were police, uh, I mean, veterans, rather, mm-hmm. of either, you know, World War II or the Korean conflict. They were probably children of the Depression. So people lived a little different then. Not only that, now you're talking the Cold War and the space race and, and uh, 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 fallout shelters and air raid drills and all of that. So I dis- that's when I said, you know what? That's what I want to emphasize in the story. I want mm-hmm. to emphasize this, this is a different time. This is an almost an apocalyptic time. Um, and and then that kind of got me to think, you know, this is a violent time. And then the more you think about it, there is there are very few times in in human history when men aren't at violence of, over something, and so I, I decided to try to write the story from that that point of view, that that both the coils and the police. Uh, were stained by this violence in some ways. There's also uh, a B-plot, if you will, involving a prison uprising. Yeah. And is that based on an actual event? Yes. There's actually two prison uh, uprisings uh, in the story that were based. And that's what's interesting about this story, that this manhunt took place only weeks after uh, the state police entered uh, Walpole Prison and Concord Prison over not only riots, but hostage taking, which the hostages were really abused mm. physically and yeah. mentally. Yeah. And, and so, the, so this period in state police history is, is kind of one of the major events in its uh, mm. historical past. And, and I'll just say this. There's a scene in the book, and I'm not giving anything away here, when, when the said aforementioned coil who's captured is sort of brought in, and you'd think he'd be, as you say, fear of God, none of that. It's very eerily reminiscent of uh, Hannibal Lecter kind of thing, because that evil is just there, and it's just pervasive and quite thoroughly, and it's, it's a great read. What's next for you, young man? What What are you working on without giving away the store here? Well, I, I haven't really... Uh, I've thought of a few things. Uh, I'm thinking possibly about doing something around... Um, the uh, the early seventies around busing mm. and, and whatnot another great period in uh, Boston history uh, that's for sure um, so I'm 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 finishing up the publicity on the second uh, the second uh, book uh, I've got uh, several more appearances uh, over the, over the summer and I, I think I'm going to use the fall for that initial okay. research again. great one of the things that is important to note in your background you're an investigator and the state police, people have the impression in other states, too, around the country that they're basically just highway patrolmen. They're just there to pull people over and right. and uh, set up perimeters and things like that. But turns out, of course, that the state police, they do a lot more, including investigating major crime. Yeah, they uh, they have as many uh, offices uh, out of uniform than they, as they do in uniform. And, and since I left the job... Um, there are, there's all kinds of specialization now, you know, that, and they have groups and, and, and units that they, they never had before. And particularly their forensics are really good now, you yeah. know. Well, as you look back on a very illustrious career in law enforcement, now you're writing these books. What's your take on the attitude of the public towards police officers? It's been tainted in some respects by media coverage. And a lot of us feel 
present company included, that police, men and women, deserve our utmost respect? Well, I, I think people overall, I think, still respect the police. They know they have a difficult job, uh, and particularly today. But I, I don't think I'm imagining the fact that there seems to be an awful lot of police officers being shot uh, or wounded in the last couple of years. And so I think they realize it's a dangerous job. Um, and unfortunately, when, when police um, uh, you know, meet and, 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 and speak and, and interact with, with uh, the public, oftentimes it's, it's uh, under difficult conditions. Mm. So, um, I, so I, I do. I do think, though, that they overall that people, uh, the, you know, the general public still has a, a you know, a, a respectful. Uh, D- despite the advances in technology and society, in wages and all that, the police of today do share a lot with the police of 1919 in terms of the struggle and the and the uh, the basic angst that they have to deal with every day. Yeah, they do. I mean, it, 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 it's so important, whether it's a police officer from back that time or, or now, that they are able to communicate and uh, show some empathy to the people that they're, they're dealing with. Mm. You know, it, it's funny. I just recently I, I spoke to the, a new class that just graduated a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the things that I um, emphasized to them was, you know, that, that the majority of people that they will interact with are just ordinary folks, you know, whether it's, you know, stopping someone for speeding on the highway and, and, and it's a woman that's running to, to, to uh, a night class to get her college education or, or a guy that's running between two jobs, you know, and I try to tell them that, you know, you got to be respectful of that. You got to think of that, you know, mm-hmm. it's not always black and white. Well, we're thankful that there are people like you who are teaching the young guys coming up and also writing these books for all of us, uh, Rising at Roxbury Crossing, which is really appropriate in 2019 because it's 100 years of speculation as to how it all happened. The Boston police strike put into great and exciting novel and an appointed time takes place in 59. Right. With uh, a six-year anniversary, yeah, and uh, as much action and adventure as you can imagine here in the great state of Massachusetts, and it's JamesRedfern.com for people who want to find out more, and I know there'll be more to find out real soon, James. Yeah, thank you so much. Great to see you, man. My pleasure. My pleasure, John. And I want to say thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Special thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, and to Ken Carberry and everybody at Chart Production Studios in Boston. Hey, until next time, remember, we're in the business of pure imagination, and I can't think of a better place to be. This is Jordan Rich reminding you to be well so you can do good. Take care.